I want you to take a look at your surroundings. The computer nearby, the phone in your pocket or on the desk next to you, your mp3 player with 10,000 songs on the shelf over there, your flat screen high definition satellite TV with thousands of channels, your car, your clothes, your medicine, your job, your favorite new books and movies. Most if not all of those things simply didn't exist in the 1980s. Okay, maybe a few of your favorite movies were around then. There was no internet to help keep up with current events. You had to read the newspaper for that. And that was mainly local stuff, or national news, if it was serious enough. If you weren't at home and someone tried to call, I hope they left a message. Or if you wanted to call someone else while you weren't at home, I hope you brought some dimes to use a payphone. The 80s brought with it a lot of change for the average American. The majority was good, but as with most things, it depends on who you ask. Gas was cheaper, stuff was built to last much, much longer, the concept of planned obsolescence hadn't even been considered yet. Movie companies and record producers had no idea what to do with all of the new, raw, original talent that was trying to make a name for itself. But some things never change. Violent crime saw a drastic surge of activity throughout the 80s and 90s. There are a number of contributing factors such as age, drug use, crime reporting, a rise in single-family homes, and the effectiveness and execution of new governmental and police policies that all added up to a less than desirable set of statistics. From 1982 to 1984, one man, Larry Eiler, would claim somewhere from 21 to 24 victims along the highway systems between Illinois, Indiana, Kentucky, and Wisconsin. Maybe allegedly on those last two? What made Larry so angry, so violent, and so hurtful? Was it his childhood? His lifestyle? His friends? Was he just angry about being named Larry? As with many other serial killers, there's likely more than one contributing factor to his behavior as an adult. It was not his name. And we're going to talk about as many of them as we can today. Welcome to My Second Self and I. Welcome back to another episode of My Favorite Thing to Do with My Free Time. I'm Matt. I'm Alex. We like to talk about crimes and figure out how to process the information with laughter and dark humor. Today is no different, except for that it'll be a longer episode than I've been putting out lately, because today is a serial killer. We haven't done one of those in a while. I don't know why I went with that voice. If you're new here, thanks for clicking that link. I like to keep my intros short whenever I have to have them, which is also why I like to do the cold opens on Serial Killer episodes. Hope you like that. It's a little taste to keep you interested while I set the expectation for new listeners. The rest of our time spent here today, we'll start with some Serial Killer stats and myths to provide a bit of context for our subject, and then proceed with as many deets as I can find from beginning to end. I also kind of feel like I might need a disclaimer in this one. It's been a while. This is a comedy show about true crime. I'm going to make a lot of jokes, I swear a lot, and I'm kind of loud. I also go off script quite a bit and tend to just follow lines of thought, but it'll come back around, trust me. While the case details are true, this show is mainly for entertainment purposes. Try not to take us too seriously if the tone doesn't quite line up to your expectation. It might just not be your preferred style of crime content consumption. 
We're not exactly experts in criminology. We just read a lot of these stories and want to retell it in our own words to make people laugh. Nice alliteration, by the way. There's usually, thank you, a handful of details that are so ridiculous you can't help but laugh or say, What the fuck? Why? And those are the things I like to capitalize on. With all those things having just been said, let's dive into some of those myths I mentioned a second ago. These I pulled straight from the FBI website so we can at least know that the data here is accurately represented. My plan for these myths is to give them to you all right now. And as we progress, we'll see how many of these can be applied to this guy. Many myths are created due to inaccurate portrayals of serial killers in movies and TV shows and other dramatic pieces. Those things tend to focus on the more sensational aspects of the crimes because if it bleeds, it leads, and uh, yeah, ratings matter. One common thing you'll notice in all of the myths, there are seven of them, is that if you change the word all to some, they instantly become true. Let's just get started and I'll show you what I mean. Alex, read the myths for us over there, buddy. Alright, but I want snacks after. Myth number one. Serial killers are all dysfunctional loners. Some serial killers are dysfunctional loners, and even then, it's a very small amount. Most serial killers tend to operate best when they're blending into normal society. Robert Yates had five kids, lived in a nice house, and flew helicopters in the National Guard, and oh yeah, killed 17 sex workers in the Spokane area in the 90s. Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, regularly went to church, was married three times, married at the time of his arrest, held the same job for 32 years, and oh yeah, murdered 48 women over a course of 20 years. BTK was the president of his church, a government employee, served in the Air Force, was married with two kids who, if I remember right, said he was actually a kind of good dad. That part of his life was completely and totally separate from the... from the grossness. I don't want to talk about BTK today. This guy Larry is already gross enough. Myth number two. Serial killers are all white males. Some serial killers are white males. Those last three were. The next six are not. Charles Ng, Derek Todd Lee, Coral Eugene Watts, Rafael Resendez Ramirez, Rory Conde, and Yasutoshi Kamada, all not white guys. Chinese, black, black, Mexican, Colombian, Japanese. That one kind of just solves itself, doesn't it? Interestingly, the racial diversity of serial killers generally mirrors the overall population. That last guy, by the way, Yasutoshi Kamada, he's the Osaka Ripper, who I talked about way back in episode 2. I might actually want to redo some of those older episodes now that I have a better idea of what I'm doing. Like, they're listenable, but I could definitely improve on that delivery. Third myth, go! Serial killers are only motivated by sex! This one I can see and is probably mostly because of TV and movies, but no, only sometimes is sex the motivator. DC snipers were just angry and looking for a thrill. Dr. Michael Swango, another guy who I've never heard of that sounds like an angel of death type, Former Marine, ambulance worker, physician, and healthcare worker, convicted of four murders, but suspected of between 35 and 50 throughout the U.S. and Africa. The webpage says, quote, Swango's motivation for the killings was intrinsic and never fully identified. Not really sure why he killed people, he just kinda did. Four score and three myths left to go. All serial killers travel and operate interstate. Ooh, that's a good one. Again. I can see why people would think that. However, most serial killers operate in a given comfort zone of sorts. 
They fleshed out a solid geographical understanding of their immediate area and figured out where the safest places to murder people are. Serial murders that occur across state lines from the same perpetrator are usually a side effect of the killer's lifestyle. Truck drivers, transients, drifters, grifters, splifters, nomads, and military folk, for example, would have many different comfort zones in many different areas because they're always moving around the country, just driving and going place to place. Alright, there's only three more left, let's roll them into one big one. Serial killers can't stop killing. All serial killers are insane or evil geniuses. Serial killers want to get caught. Serial killers are weird, right? You always expect them to be this monstrous thing lurking in the darkness with all these fantastical things said about them to make them sound more monstrous and dangerous. Don't get me wrong, they're incredibly dangerous people, but it's because they're just people. But they can't stop killing? It's not like a Pringles can, come on. BTK, after his 10th victim, didn't kill again from 91 to 2005 when he got arrested. Jeffrey Gorton's first victim was in 1986, then nothing until 1991, and that was it until 2002 when he got arrested. And are they all insane or evil geniuses? Of course not. Mainly because the legal definition of insanity is constantly changing, but generally because it means that that person has to literally believe that they are in a separate dimension and sees fucking cube-shaped stars on the ground at all times or some shit like that, or there's a tiny wizard living in my shoe that... If I don't give him three popcorn kernels a day, he'll give me athlete's foot or some shit. Like, I don't know. It's, that's an insane thought from an insane person if they 1 million percent believe that that's true. But a lot of times they don't. It's just a projection to make themselves look insane to get a lesser plea. But that's a whole different thing that I didn't research and I'm not going to ad lib through all of it. But since we're already here, this is what I meant earlier when I said I go off script. Um... If you get an insanity plea, it's not any better than if you just went to regular jail, because it's not, you're not free anyway. We'll, we'll go on to somewhere else, we'll move on again. But then again, actual geniuses like Edmund Kemper are made that much more terrifying because of their intelligence. His IQ test showed at 145 at Atascadero, but it's generally believed that he got that score intentionally to hide how smart he really was. He was, and still is, a sociopathic genius. He manipulated an IQ test. Hold on, that's fucking insane. He understood how an IQ test worked so bad, or so well, that he told them what he wanted them to think he scored on it. That's fucking crazy to me. He's also almost seven goddamn feet tall, six foot nine, and weighs 300 pounds, which is about the scariest thing I could possibly imagine. A human mountain that could easily kill you and is smarter than you. That's fucking terrifying. And it's not that the serial killers want to get caught, they just get sloppy. Years of being emboldened by not being caught causes them to be a little more careless, which usually winds up with them being arrested. Alright, we got a good bit of episode so far. Now that we've familiarized ourselves with some serial killer stuff a little bit more, let's talk about Larry Eiler, a guy I'd never heard of until the last episode. And I, by the way, I promise not to do another Larry for at least another four episodes. That's just too much Larry. Prepare your ear holes for the grossness that is Larry Eiler. If that sentence sounded gross to you, just wait. You should also mentally prepare yourself for the Midwest, don't you know? Maybe we'll hear from Tony today. Larry Eiler was the youngest of four children, born December 21st, 1952, to George Howard Eiler and Shirley Phyllis Kennedy. 
Surely you remember in the cold open the contributing factor of age? Well, that was specifically tied to the baby boomer generation, which would place many of those babies at around 18 to 25 through the 1970s and 80s, kind of like this guy, just an interesting thing I neglected to mention. <coughs> baby boomers are destroying this country. <coughs> Oh, sorry, sorry, I, I, don't, I don't know where that came from. His father's only known details, besides his name, are this. An emotionally and physically abusive alcoholic that was horrible to his wife and children. Shirley divorced his worthless ass in 1955 and began to try her damnedest to keep all the kids alive and in good condition. She worked two waitress jobs and a factory job on the weekdays and sometimes at a bar on weekends. The kids would be with babysitters or foster families or sometimes just the other kids, the oldest of which was 10. Babies raising babies. I'm sorry, but the thought of a 10-year-old in charge of anything is never not going to be funny to me. Regardless of mom's insane schedule, she always carved out enough time to visit the kiddos when they were with sitters or the foster families. Gotta give her credit for trying, that's a fucking tough lady. She'd get married a couple more times in 1957, 1960, and a fourth time in 1972. The marriages in 57 and 60 were short-lived, can you guess why? They were both one year and four years, respectively, most likely due to them both being abusive alcoholics. Again, not great for little Larry. One of them, the stepdads, by the way, frequently held Larry's head under scalding hot water as a form of discipline. What the fuck? How does that teach discipline? I guess it's some kind of fucked up pain tolerance ritual to make him tougher because he's the baby? Maybe? Maybe baby? Let's move on. He was a big kid for his age too, which normally would get other kids to leave you alone, unless you're also the poor kid at school who always gets ripped on and bullied. Larry was no different, and if not for his sister Teresa coming to his aid, he might have had a worse time at school. I'm sure that didn't help much either, actually. Yeah, I can't have my sister fighting my fights for me. Back up, Terry. What you doing, Terry? Well, in 1963, Teresa was on the sidelines watching Larry get shipped off to a home for unruly boys. Larry had become increasingly erratic, and Mom didn't know what else to do. It didn't last too long, though, as Larry cried his way home a short time later, which then prompted a slew of psychological tests. He was found to be severely insecure and had abandonment and separation issues. Yeah, I guess you would if that's how you grew up. And then it gets more interesting for Larry. Right around puberty time, he discovers he's also gay. He was pretty open about it with his family, but he hated that he was gay. He dated a few girls in high school to try to keep up appearances and only told a very select few that he was struggling with accepting his sexuality. He drops out of high school, later gets his GED, goes to college, leaves that, worked as a security guard at a hospital for about six months, then at a shoe store, which is a very different line of work, and then he said, you know what, I might as well get acquainted with the gay community while I'm at it. See, he wasn't opposed to a few casual encounters here and there. However... Several of those men would recall Larry just shouting obscenities while not looking at his partner. He would shout bitch and whore, which might just be him fantasizing that his partner was a woman. You whore! I think it's probably safe to say this guy doesn't know a lot about women at this point in his life. Those are two things you definitely never want to say to a woman's face. Even if she calls herself those things, you're still not allowed to say it. But it's fucking hilarious imagining him screaming that in my head. Get naked, you bitch! By the mid-1970s, Larry was pretty well known in the gay community, particularly among leather fetishists, except for uh, he had a rather odd quirk in the bedroom. 
I think we knew that already, or at the very least suspected it. He had a sadistic streak and a violent temper that would lead him to bludgeoning and leaving light knife wounds on unwilling partners. What the fuck, man? That's not a weird quirk. That's assault. He must have been a fucking charmer. I would imagine word like that gets around pretty quickly in that community, especially for one of the more handsome guys in the pool. Okay, if Larry by himself wasn't disturbing enough, you know, screaming bitch and whore at lovers he met at bars while cutting them with knives and bludgeoning them, well, now we're going to introduce another guy into this story, Robert David Little. He is described as a, quote, socially awkward, taciturn, and unattractive individual. He is a professor of library sciences at Indiana State University, where the two met while Larry briefly attempted to earn a higher education. So he's a short, ugly librarian? I don't know if he's short, his height isn't mentioned anywhere, but these two had a really interesting relationship. Larry kinda saw him as a father figure, even lived with him in Terre Haute, but then also, the two would wingman for each other at the bar. Little, looking how he looks I guess, often ran into difficulties picking up dates, so Larry would do the brunt of the work and bring them back for both men to sleep with, or do whatever with, I don't really know. There was probably more than one thing to do on that to-do list once they got a date back home. Those two met sometime in the early to mid-70s and did their thing for a while, and then on August 3rd, 1978, something bad happens. Like, really bad. This is fucking nuts. A 19-year-old hitchhiker named Craig Long was just a-walking down the street when Larry pulls up next to him in his truck and offers him a ride. Shortly after they pull away, Larry propositions Craig. Craig, on the other hand, not a gay guy, or at least not interested in anything with a stranger in a truck while hitchhiking. So, he politely declines. No thank you. Larry steps it up a notch right here. He begins to escalate, as we see pretty frequently with serial killers. Oh yeah, the myths, almost forgot. So far, we have breezed by the first three. Dysfunctional loner, motivated by sex, white male. He's certainly dysfunctional. I think most people are anyway, at least to some degree. I definitely am. He also definitely is a white male, but I'm not certain sex is the motivator for his actions. It's sort of part of it, kinda. But I think it's more of an anger thing for him. We'll, we'll see why a bit later. Back to Craig. He refuses Larry's advances, which, of course, angers Larry. So what does Larry do? Totally normal and expected behavior in response. He holds a knife to Craig's chest and says the following super creepy thing. Quote, It's not your money I want. I'm not after your money. Craig's over there going, oh god, please don't be my butthole, please don't be my butthole. No, it's not his butthole, it's actually way worse. He orders Craig to undress, handcuffs him, binds his ankles, and puts him in the bed of the truck. Now, as Larry is undressing, Craig takes off running down the street, naked and bound at the ankles while screaming, his words not mine, you queer, and desperately trying to escape this nightmare of a situation. Tyler, though, Larry, is not handicapped by handcuffs and ankle ropes. Good song title right there. It is. Larry catches up to Craig, stabs him in the chest, puncturing a lung. Craig falls to the ground, plays dead until Larry leaves, and then somehow manages to make it to a nearby house while they call the paramedics. Summon forth the wee-woo cube! Imagine being that homeowner. A tied-up naked kid that's been stabbed is now bleeding out on my doorstep. What the fuck? It's like the middle of the day, too. Then it gets worse. While the cops are taking his statement and the ambulance crew is tending to his wounds, fucking Larry shows up. What? 
Why? He felt guilty, maybe? Or maybe he was trying to mitigate his punishment a little bit by turning himself in? At the house? That's a bold strategy. He gave one of the deputies a handcuff key and said that the stabbing was an accident. I accidentally pierced his lung with this knife I definitely shouldn't have. He's arrested, obviously. They searched his truck and found a hunting knife, a metal-tipped whip, ooh, a butcher knife, another set of handcuffs, tear gas, no idea fucking how, moving on, and oh yeah, a sword. Why did he have that? I know, dude. It just keeps going, too. He's charged with aggravated battery and bond is set at around $10,000. He's released on bail August 23rd, about three weeks later. His friends had no trouble raising that $10,000 bail. Then, Robert David Little sends Craig's lawyers a check for $2,500 if Craig agrees to not press charges. Craig agrees. $2,500 is probably a lot of money in 1973. Eiler changes his plea to not guilty, is acquitted, and released on November 13th, happy birthday, and only ended up paying $43 in court costs. 43 bucks to be able to stab a guy, admit it to the cops while giving them the knife, and get away with it? Completely scot-free. This is a crazy-ass story so far. We haven't even made it to the murders yet, and I'm telling you, it just keeps getting fucking weirder. August 1981, Larry meets another man. This man's name is John Dobrovolsky. I'm 100% sure I'm not saying that right. There are a lot of vowels in that name. A 20-year-old man with a wife, two kids of his own, and three foster kids in Chicago, so five kids, John's wife, Sally, knew about his extramarital affairs with Larry and was tolerant of it, I guess, to the point Larry actually lived with them on the weekends. That is a really tolerating wife. This has to be that charmer thing that serial killers do. Can you imagine living like that? Dude, I can barely imagine living my current life while I'm living it. I don't know how many fucking times this year I've asked myself, how is this a true story? But Larry's just chugging along like it's the next thing to do. Larry and John were super close, super tight. Despite neither of them having a penchant for monogamy, they both considered the relationship pretty permanent. They'd tie each other up to different devices and other things, beat each other, scream, yell, whatever sadomasochistic thing piqued their interest at that moment. All of it was on the table, including Larry and John. If you remember, though, Larry has some pretty severe separation and abandonment issues and was constantly seeking reassurance from John that he wasn't cheating on him or something. John didn't like those accusations, so he'd lash out and hit Larry, but Larry never retaliated. Maybe he didn't want to risk John leaving? Which is strange when you consider the following. There's this thing in psychology called projection. Maybe not only in psychology, but that's mostly where I see this word tossed around. Think of it sort of like, he who smelt it dealt it. Oftentimes, people will project their own insecurities onto other people. People that are paranoid about their partner having an affair or something are usually already guilty of doing that. Larry was still commuting to and from Indiana where he worked in a liquor store on weekends and lived with Robert rent-free. Lived with John and his five kids and wife during the week. Lived with Robert David Little during the weekends where he worked in a liquor store, moving from state to state to do so. By the way, that's myth number four right there, which in this case just happens to be true. He's moving from state to state. That sound means we're moving on to the next part of the story, and this is where things start to get really gross and pretty heavy. Over the next two years, 1982 and 1984, Larry would claim at least 21 victims, maybe 24. 
Most of his victims were found lying outside near interstate highways or other roads, which is what earned him the moniker of Highway Killer or Interstate Killer. Many of the victims were disemboweled, and four were dismembered, with the majority of wounds being inflicted on the chest or abdomen. Before killing each of his victims, Eiler would give them alcohol and sedatives as a way to restrain them. The sedative he liked to use is no longer manufactured, at least in this country, and was a potent insomnia drug. If you were around in the 90s, you might remember Placidil. It is a sedative and hypnotic drug, is powerfully addicting, causes hallucinations, convulsions, memory loss, skin rashes, faintness, restlessness, and was only ever prescribed if literally every other drug treatment option was ineffective or if there was an allergy problem present. It's not really to be fucked around with. A cocktail of jelly bellies and vodka would make it pretty easy to subdue anybody. That sounds like a super bad combo. This is going to get progressively more graphic from this point on, so heads up. Also, you're welcome, Mom. She loves the graphic shit. October 12, 1982. E.T. was phoning home. Spicoli was trying to have a pizza delivered to the classroom. Meanwhile, Larry was busy with his second attempt at a murder in Crown Point, Indiana. Strangely enough, this is another young man named Craig. 20 years old when he met Larry at an arcade in downtown Crown Point. Sounds like the place to be. Meet me at the downtown Crown Arcade. I got a roll of quarters and nowhere else to be. So the first Craig was just to kind of iron out the wrinkles in his killing methodology. Craig 1 just happened to survive. He was trying to work out what worked and what doesn't work. A very common pattern in serial killers. I couldn't find where exactly he met the second Craig. But seeing as how the two are close in age, we can probably guess that they also met at the arcade. I mean, I'm cool with that if you're cool with that. So... Just like before, he drugs and alcohols Craig Townsend, beats him unmercifully, likely stabbed, stripped naked, and left to die in exposure in the field in the middle of nowhere. Amazingly, this Craig also survived his encounter with Larry. Eleven days later, on October 23rd, Larry abducted and murdered 19-year-old Stephen Crockett, his first official murder. His body was discovered in a cornfield somewhere in Kankakee County, only around 12 hours after his death. He had been beaten and then stabbed 32 times, including four times in the head. I think right here is where I'm going to say that for Larry, the motivated by sex myth is not applicable. The amount of stab wounds there and the general condition of the bodies point more toward rage, in my opinion. That is a shit ton of stabs. We've done this little exercise before. Pretend to stab something like you really mean it. Now, do that. 31 more times exactly as hard. You gotta really want it to follow through. I've been fake stabbing for a while now, and my I don't know how many I have, but my arm is already tired. Larry takes a teeny tiny break for about a week to give his arm a rest, and then October 30th, Edgar Underkofler went missing from Rantoul, Illinois. Is that how you say that? Roughly 42 miles away. His body, however, wasn't discovered until March 4th, 1983, in a field somewhere near Danville. Damn, he couldn't have waited two more days and at least given this kid one more Halloween. Early on in November, Larry meets up with a guy named John Johnson at a bar in maybe Lowell, Indiana. From here, pretty much the same as all the others, and I say maybe Lowell because that's where his body was found, but it doesn't say exactly where they met. Police found his remains roughly another month after his unfortunate meeting with Larry. November 20th, same month, here we go again, he picks up another hitchhiker. This one's name is William Lewis. 
Bill is picked up near Vincennes, then is drugged, beaten, and stabbed, but this time buried in a field near Rensselaer, Indiana. That's not right at all. I know it. I know that one's wrong. And it would also take a long damn time to bury somebody by yourself. He must really have a lot of rage because he shows no signs of slowing down or de-escalating his process. December 19th, 23-year-old Stephen again is abducted in Terre Haute. His body was discovered close to I-63 nine days later on December 28th. And this is one of the important ones for investigators. His gnarly crime scene gave them a slightly better view of the bigger picture. Let me give you the rundown of the scene real quick. This is kind of intense. Just off the highway where Steven's body was discovered. You've seen, you've all seen that dilapidated piece of shit on the outskirts of town that's just kind of out there. What goes on in there, you wonder? I, there's one of those maybe 20 minutes from where I'm sitting right now. And it's, I hope... Whatever goes on in the one near me is not what happens in this one. Just off the highway where Stephen's body was discovered, there was an abandoned barn. Police entered to find just a fucking disgusting murder scene. There were pieces of human flesh stuck to the walls. The plaster on the walls had also been damaged in several spots, which pointed to poor Stephen having been suspended from the wall somehow while he was being tortured and murdered. There was so much violence and so much trauma to basically his entire upper body that the coroner, John Pless, said that it was likely there was more than one person involved. Right after John Pless conducted Stephen's autopsy, he conducted another one on John Roach, whose body had been found near I-70 that same day. Almost the exact same injuries and nearly the same amount of rage based on the extent Maybe someone helped him out with this one too? Does he have an accomplice? Is this a serial killer with an accomplice thing? Those are not very common, by the way. December 30th, another person goes missing. This time, it's a 22-year-old Yale graduate named David Block. He was abducted in Highland Park, but it wasn't until around a year and a half later that his body was found. Alright, so. All of those murders I just told you about took place from October 1982 to... December 1982. This guy's fucking busy. Most serial killers, at least the ones I've read about, have a few victims and then a significant cooling off period. But this guy is just like the Energizer Bunny. He just keeps going and going with the murders. What the shit? Where is he getting all this energy? Eight people in three months, including two Stevenses, two Johnses, and two attempted Craigs? What the hell, Larry? Oh, but wait, there's more. We're not even close to done. We're going to keep going right along through this. January 24th, 16-year-old Irvin Gibson was abducted and copypasta the previous victims. His body was found on April 15th, relatively quickly this time, except he was found on top of a dog that had also been stabbed to death. What the fuck, Larry? Why the dog, man? That bums me out so much when an animal dies in these. Over the course of March and spanning all the way into April just two months, Larry would claim five more victims, all between the ages of 17 to 29. I, however, do not have names for those victims, unfortunately. More unfortunately, he's going to keep this horrible montage going. Can he just not stop? Is that myth for him? Does that one hold true for Larry, maybe? May 9th, 1983, right on into victim number 14, Daniel Scott McNeve, this time found by State Road 39 in Indiana. Similar wounds linked him to likely the same perpetrator as the previous victims, 11 stabs to the neck, 5 to the back, and 11 more to the abdomen, effectively disemboweling this poor kid. His intestines were kind of poking out through the stab wounds. 
There were also welts on his wrists and ankles where he'd been bound, and his pants were found around his ankles, though, as with other victims, there were no signs of sexual assault, another thing that points to him not being a sex-motivated killer. Nine days later, Richard Bruce in Effingham, Illinois, love that name, was abducted, assaulted, stabbed. Richard Bruce is a cool name too. Possibly tied to a wall, and then Larry takes another sharp left turn and throws his body off a bridge into a creek. His body was discovered December 5th at the very end of 1983. By now, the police have been a pretty frequent appearance at various gay bars and bookstores. They were trying to monitor the movements and patterns of the patrons so that they might identify suspicious behavior and hope to find Larry. The Works, a gay newspaper, never heard of a gay newspaper before, I looked it up, it's exactly a normal newspaper, just with a bunch of gay-related ads and stuff in there. Kinda neat, I found an archive about it, it was kinda cool to look at, we'll move on. They published an article attempting to disclose the killer's motives, then they opened up an anonymous hotline as well, so you can call in with any tips, and offered a $1,500 reward for any information with the help of one of the victim's family members. Okay, that was kind of a lot right now, and I think I kind of need a break from the killing for just a second. That was 15 murders in, what was that, October 82 to April 1983. Seven months and 15 victims. That's kind of ridiculous. That's two victims a month almost. That, that's too many. That's crazy. Hey, how about this for a quick break? Let's talk about just some weird Midwestern shit for a second. Okay. People from the Midwest, specifically Pittsburgh. What the fuck is Randyland? <laughs> I have to look into this real quick. First of all, that name is amazing. And second of all, oh my god, I have never seen so many bright, vibrant colors in one place. It's an outdoor art installation that a guy named Randy Gilson bought in 95 with a credit card somehow. And everything you can see, at least on the outside, is hand-painted, turbo-bright, yellow, blue, green, orange, purple, all different hues and shades of just tons and tons of hippie shit. Pinwheels, metal lawn chairs, plant pots, decorative lions, paper lanterns, park benches, butterflies, street signs, pennants, banners, the stairs, the building itself, the fucking rocks, a bunch of random doors, there's a walkthrough canopy of random hanging fruits, goddess statues, flamingos, and why the hell not at this point, a bunch of mannequin heads. Woo! I know, right? This is cool as shit, don't get me wrong, I'm an artist too, and I love seeing big groups of collaborative art shit like this, especially with a name like Randyland. <laughs> but I think this would kinda hurt my eyes too much to go here in person. Some of this stuff is kinda too bright for me, my eyes suck. On that same webpage, I also saw in Mansfield, Ohio, you can go tour the actual prison Shawshank was filmed in for $15? That sounds cool as shit, I definitely wanna do that. Okay, we still have a lot to go. That's enough of a break for a little while. Now we're going to talk about a multi-state task force that was cobbled together to catch Larry. There were four separate murder investigations spanning four jurisdictions that were all combined into one big unit. Two detectives from the Stadies, two from Indianapolis, and two from each county, so I think that's ten officers total were tasked with tracking down Larry. I also know how to pronounce that one correctly, I just chose not to. Day number one of the task force, investigations were immediately running into problems. Local police in the Midwest don't usually have to deal with a ton of murder to begin with, and now they've got, so far, 15 bodies, some of which had been mutilated and disemboweled. To put it bluntly, they have no fucking clue where to start, so they call the FBI Crime Information Center for assistance. They give them all the information they have available and basically end up saying, we haven't ever seen this shit before. Who do you have working for you that can explain it to us? We need somebody with experience. They need Tony No Rears on the case. He'll help them out. 
While they're waiting for a response from an experienced FBI agent, Larry is now over in Kentucky, and they find the body of Jay Reynolds somewhere in Madison County. A couple days after that, Chicago calls up the task force with an update of their own. Turns out, on the same day McNeve's body was found in Indiana, there was another body, that of an 18-year-old African-American kid named Jimmy Roberts, who had been stabbed 35 times in Thorn Creek. Both of the new bodies were immediately linked to whoever this guy was. We know who it was. Police don't know just yet. Until sorta right now, they finally get a break in the case when, surprise surprise, a lover once scorned resurfaces in the form of a phone call directly to the task force. Thomas Henderson said that the person responsible might be Larry based on his previous record. He'd explained he'd been charged with, quote, some sort of stabbing, had a violent temper, and liked bondage. Seemed to fit the profile pretty snugly. Some sort of stabbing is a very interesting quote to me. Just, I don't know, some stabbing, I don't know. But no, 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 that's not the only information he have to give. He also tells them about him staying in Greencastle on the weekends where he worked at the liquor store. And, oh yeah, about this one time in May 1982, five months before the first Craig, he had also drugged a 14-year-old boy and left him out in the woods as a means to test the drug's effectiveness. Thanks, Thomas! For real, that's a huge break. Luckily, police take it seriously and begin looking into Larry's background. They confirm the incident with the first Craig, which perfectly lined up with the M.O. Okay. Remember when they called the FBI a little while ago? Well, they worked up a little psychological profile on our guy Larry, and I'm always amazed at how accurate these are. Quote, A white man in his late 20s or early 30s who worked in a menial profession and who presented a rough exterior in part due to his self-hatred regarding his sexual attraction to other, other males. Fucking nailed it. It goes on to say that they would project a, quote, macho man image and seek the company and approval of large masculine men. Just big, burly, bear-type guys. They'd be a night owl-type, frequent some redneck bars while also living on the edge of a full-blown gay panic that someone might label him as a queer. That fear could lead to a person expressing hatred towards homosexuals as a way of hiding his true sexuality. They also predicted that upon completion of a murder, the offender would symbolically erase the act by making a rudimentary effort to cover his victims with leaves or soil, and that they likely had a middle-aged, middle-class accomplice that was much smarter than him assisting him on several of his initial murders. Now, we have a pretty solid psychological profile for Larry. The FBI kind of invented that whole concept with the BSU, I think, so they tend to be pretty accurate. And I know what you might be thinking. Generally, at this point in a murder story, once the police get a name and a profile for the perp, it's usually just a real quick step to the arrest. But we're talking about Larry here. He's not done. He's still angry. And he doesn't really seem to have a type apart from has a penis. Which is why, on July 2nd, the body of another unidentified Hispanic man was found in a field near Paxton. And another eight weeks after that, a tree trimming crew found another body, this time in a field near Illinois Route 60. They're always in fields by highways. First body of the Hispanic man was stabbed multiple times in the abdomen. And the other body, 28-year-old Ralph Calise, had been stabbed 17 times with a butcher knife, severely enough to disembowel poor Ralph as well. I really don't understand how one man can have so much energy. He has not stopped killing since he started. Good Lord, I guess maybe that one can be true sometimes. In September, a reporter from Chicago notices some similarities in the bodies discovered. After going over her findings with the task force, they add up the additional findings, and now we're at a body count of, I think, 17. I've kind of lost track by now. But wait, 
There's still more. October 4th, two mushroom hunters find something that nobody ever wants to find in the woods. A woolly Neptune? No, Gene, er, Alex. They find a torso in a plastic bag just lying in the woods. Bag of torso lying right over there. 18-year-old Eric Hansen had been last seen alive September 27th in St. Francis. He had been completely dismembered. Arms, legs, hands, and head were removed with a fucking hacksaw and the torso had been completely drained of blood. They never found the skull or the hands. What did he do with those? I... You know what? Never mind. I don't think I actually want to know. Because two weeks later, October 8th, right on fucking cue, four more bodies were discovered. I Seriously, I have lost count by now. We're gonna go back visually to that dilapidated piece of shit right outside town, but this time we're not going inside. We're gonna be looking at that big gnarly tree that's right out front. I don't believe this is the same barn that Stephen again was found in, but I'm positive it looks exactly the same. These four bodies had been dead for a few months at this point and were extremely half-acidly buried in the soil by a big oak tree. The three white victims were all buried on the same side of the tree, heads facing north, about three feet apart from one another, and the one black victim was on the other side of the tree. This, to me, kind of feels like he's starting to get careless too. Four bodies killed in the same way, buried poorly in the same place in a weird pattern, almost like he's hinting at some sort of signature. Dude, I think we just covered all of those myths right there. Yeah, I think we did. It doesn't seem like he can stop, or probably just doesn't want to. He's got a lot of anger issues. Is he insane or an evil genius, though? No, I think he's just a super angry, violent dude that wants to hurt people. And he might not be actively seeking to get caught, but his hubris is starting to catch up with him, which is going to get him caught. Always does. Two months later, getting kind of sloppy again, December 7th, another unlucky hunter finds a gruesome discovery in the woods, the partially buried skeleton of Richard Wayne, and a few feet away underneath a burned-down trailer was another body of an unidentified black man. Let's back up just a little bit, back to September 30th in Lowell, Indiana. While those bodies were being discovered, there was a whole other thing going on back over here. Larry was arrested during a routine traffic stop. The arresting officer notices that the passenger is a young male and detains the two on sexual solicitation charges while he searches the vehicle, finding some nylon rope, which he performed without Larry's consent, by the way. About 1.30 that day, the task force team informs Larry that you're super under suspicion of a lot of murders because of that phone call from Thomas earlier. Thank you, Thomas. Then he does that thing that killers do when they try to be just a little bit too helpful and cooperative. They begin questioning him about John Roach and Daniel McNeve. Larry told them he'd read about them in the paper, but I didn't kill him, and then consented to a forensic examination of the truck, along with fingerprints, mugshots, polygraph tests, Halshbank. Maybe, maybe if I just volunteer to do those things willingly, they'll see that I'm actually a nice guy and think it was somebody else. Kind of what that feels like to me. Here's what they found in the truck. A knife, two sections of nylon rope, handcuffs, a hammer, two baseball bats, a mallet, and some surgical tape. Basically his entire kill kit. That other kid got so fucking lucky. They also found his boots to be an exact match for prints found at the scene for Ralph Kalise's murder. The tire tracks were found to be similar. There was blood on the handle of the knife that was inside the vehicle. His commute schedule lined up with several of his body locations in Greencastle, Terre Haute, and Chicago. And the FBI profile that they'd worked on him is dead on balls accurate. 
dead on balls accurate? It's an industry term. Keep up. They've essentially got him dead to rights now, and the evidence just keeps piling up. That's a quote from my cousin Vinny. If you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor and go fucking watch it. He's free to go for now, Larry, but with him being aware that he's a suspect, a pretty prime one at that, the task force quickly applies for a search warrant. Where? The home of Robert David Little. Remember him? Oh yeah, the short, ugly librarian. Yeah, that's the guy. Well, they're gonna search his house and, oh boy, do they find some stuff here. Credit card receipts that place Larry in the locations where victims had been killed on the day they were killed. Phone records show he regularly placed calls to Little at really strange hours right after the murders were believed to have occurred. An April 8th call to Little's house from a payphone in Cook County right by the hospital prompted police to check hospital records. Maybe he went there. He did. He had admitted himself with a large gash on his hand, claimed that he fell on a beer bottle after falling out of my truck. Don't believe that, I don't think. That was the same day that Gustavo Herrera was killed also. Not suspicious at all. Nope. Mm -mm, not one bit. That's definitely a beer bottle wound from falling out of a truck. Not a defensive stab at all. Then after he left the hospital and right before he killed Ralph Calise, Larry and Little went to New York for a little vacation. They found all that stuff on October 2nd, and Larry was released from custody on October 4th while they sort through everything to secure an official indictment or an arrest. This is crazy right here. Larry calls up a lawyer in Chicago by the name of Kenneth Ditkowski. He needs some legal representation. Then Ditkowski, citing confirmation of a lack of evidence to charge Larry with murder, files a civil suit of his own. He claimed they were harassing his client, had violated Larry's 14th Amendment rights and civil rights, and sought $250,000 in damages against 11 different officers. After he brutally murdered like 19 fucking people, I've lost count. They're harassing me, I have rights, you can't do this to me, I deserve money! We're gonna skip ahead just a little bit here. There's still a lot to go. All the forensic shit lines up exactly how investigators thought it would. Tire marks, grip depths, tire manufacturers, all that stuff. His civil suit was on October 29th and his lawyer got shut down pretty handily by the judge. Ditkowski claimed there was, quote, not one scintilla of evidence against his client. But the judge, being a judge and having read all the documentation from the task force, he's allowed to do that, why? He's a judge, not a civil lawyer. He tells Ditkowski, quote, You don't have access to that information, and I can't help but feeling like there's a really strong undertone in the judge's voice of, Of course you don't have access to that. You're a civil lawyer, you dipshit. After that's settled, officers execute a search warrant for Larry's blood and hair, which they determine to be O positive, the most common blood type, and he is finally... Formally charged with the murder of Ralph Calise. Bond is set at one million doll hairs and the trial date set for December 19th. November 1st, officers execute another search warrant on Little's house, this time to search for keepsakes or trophies. See, serial killers like to take trophies usually. They're looking for wallets or watches or wristbands or something that might have belonged to the victim, but sadly, they find nothing of interest. Except for a key! This key precisely matched one found underneath Stephen Agan's body and fit the door of an office that Eiler had previously worked at in around 1982. Also at this time, Eiler's mother, Little, and the other man, John Dobrovolsky, he hadn't come up in a while, they all collectively decided to fire Ditkowski and replace that moron with a better lawyer, whose name is David Shippers. I say better because he's actually a criminal defense attorney, not a civil lawyer. 
The next couple of months, there was a huge legal back and forth dealing with chains of custody and warrants, probable cause, tainting and evidence, blah, blah, blah. Ton of legal shit that's a really boring dry read that I won't stick you with. It basically ends up with Eiler being released from custody on February 6th and then moving into an apartment in Chicago that was paid for and furnished by, you guessed it, Robert David Little. He tried to not tell the other man, John Dobrovolsky, but he eventually found out later on. All right. We are officially on the home stretch now. I'm going to try to breeze through this as thoroughly as I can just to save a little bit of time. Fast forward six months from Larry's release, August 21st, 1984. A janitor that works at Larry's apartment is doing his daily rounds. He notices a garbage bin inside one of the units that has been deemed unusable for tenants at the complex. He exercises his janitorial duties. He removes the bin to inspect the contents, causing one of the six plastic bags inside to split open, revealing a human leg. What the shit? How'd that get in there? Two days prior, on August 19th, Larry had lured a 16-year-old boy named Daniel Bridges to his apartment. Bridges was aware of Larry's reputation and was hesitant to accompany him. However, Bridges had an extremely rough upbringing, such that he became a male prostitute at the age of 12 despite being a heterosexual. Once inside the apartment, Larry bound Daniel with a clothesline, beat him, stabbed him, and dismembered the body in his bathroom, separating it into eight pieces that he placed into six different plastic bags. I cannot figure out that math. I, it's, my guess is he did something with the head and hands again. Maybe a bag for each leg, one, two, each arm, three, four, one for the torso, five, and then six bag for the head and the hands, maybe? The janitor, Joseph Bala, Joseph Shock Kala, immediately called the police after he was done screaming and his adrenaline slowed down a little bit. Police instantly recognized the name and dispatched units to, quote, arrest everybody inside Unit 106. And minutes later, they would do exactly that. Dobrovolsky was also there, but he was released soon after with no charges. The inside of the apartment was an absolute shit storm. It was a total wreck. Blood stains everywhere, furniture on the walls, tools, clothes, much of which belonged to David, were all soaked in blood. There were receipts that showed Larry had recently bought a lot of hacksaw blades, weird thing to buy a lot of in one time. It's a horrible scene, and it's all they need to secure another murder charge. Skipping ahead again a little bit to trial time. July 1st, 1986, Prosecutor Mark Rakowski, don't know, provides the opening statement, stating that if it, had been, if it hadn't been for the janitor suspecting Eiler of illegally dumping trash, Daniel's body would likely be in the landfill right now. He also references a different janitor who said Eiler told him, I'm just getting rid of some shit from my apartment, when asked about what he was doing at the garbage bin. The defense attorney, Shippers, who was offering his services pro bono, Larry was financially insolvent, claimed that Larry wasn't the one who actually murdered him, he just moved the body. Not a great distinction. There were other men in the apartment at that time, and there's no direct evidence Daniel was inside my client's truck or that he was forced inside the home voluntarily. I know he's just doing his job, and he has to provide a legal defense for Larry, but that's really splitting some hairs there, and I also don't think we're as worried about what happened in the truck. There wasn't any noteworthy evidence found in it, so it seems like it's kind of irrelevant at this point. First witness, Robert David Little claimed to have been with Larry from the 17th to the 19th and left around 10.15 the night of the murder. 
Next witness, next day, Dr. Robert Stein, whom I think is the forensic pathologist, it doesn't give his title, but he testifies to the brutality of the crime that it was the, quote, worst he'd ever seen, and that Bridges had alcohol and cocaine in his system, suggesting he might have entered voluntarily. Next witness, another janitor that saw Larry making several trips to and from the garbage can while remarking he was, quote, getting tools for a job. I guess maybe the garbage can was outside the vacant unit, not just inside it. Maybe I read that wrong. Next up is the seldom heard from Dobrovolsky. He testifies on behalf of the prosecution, stating that on August 20th, the day after the murder, Eiler told him not to come to the apartment for any reason because he was still with Lil. John said, fuck that, I'm coming over anyway, I'll be there in 15 minutes, I have to see you right now. No, 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 don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, no, 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 I'll, don't, I'll, I'll come to you, I'll come to you. So Eiler went to go see John, but John said it seemed a little bit off. He was disinterested in sex and had recently showered. The judge takes all this in, informs the jury to consider delicately all of the evidence they'd just heard, and they go off to deliberate. They come back three hours later, and Eiler was found guilty of aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and murder of Daniel Bridges, as well as concealment of the body. This is absolutely a death penalty case, and they're for sure going for it. They introduce four more character witnesses that all had run-ins with Larry. Doesn't give names, but I'd have to guess probably the two Craigs, that 14-year-old kid, and maybe that Thomas guy? The other prosecutor, Richard Stock, added, quote, there is nothing, Your Honor, nothing that can mitigate the tears and agony that Larry Eiler has caused in his entire life. For 33 years, and he has caused more tears than anyone. A sentence other than death would be giving him his freedom. October 3rd at 10 a.m., Judge Urso delivers his verdict and a really solid judgy fuck-off, which we all know I love. He said, quote, the senseless and barbaric murder of a 16-year-old boy, a killing so brutal it defies description, shows me your complete disregard for human life. If there ever was a person or a situation for which the death penalty is appropriate, it is you. You are an evil person. You truly deserve to die for your acts. I thereby sentence you to death for the murder of Danny Bridges. Get the fuck out of my courtroom. I love it when a judge says stuff like that. There's, of course, tons and tons of appeals, as with any death sentence, but they're all just time wasters. There's nothing mitigating about Larry, and an initial date is set for March 14th, 1990, but those always get pushed back. Hold on, though. <laughs> we still have another trial to go through. Robert David Little may have helped him with a few of those murders, namely Stephen again. His trial is on April 11th, 1991, which Eiler is present for. Larry testifies that they both killed Stephen. He was one of the youths they'd wingman for for each other. Larry would do the sexing while Little took pictures. Ew. Eiler says that on the day of Stephen's murder, Little wanted to, quote, do a scene, also ew, don't call it that, that was code for committing a sexually motivated murder while Little photographed the event. Alright, so maybe Robert was motivated by sex. You know, it feels like a logical step to make if he had persistent trouble with finding dates, I guess. Moving on. We're going to look a little bit closer into Stephen's murder right now. We are back once again at the dilapidated piece of shit on the outskirts town. Stephen's hands are tied above a beam. Little shouts to Larry, Get out the knife! While stabbing Stephen multiple times himself, also while jacking it the entire time taking photos. Triple ew! Then, when I guess he was finished, Little told Larry, Okay, kill the motherfucker. 
I think we've definitely topped our grossness charts on this show. This is fucking hard to get through. Dr. John Pless makes an appearance once again. However, due to the severe condition of Stephen's body, he couldn't conclusively pinpoint the time of death, but believed he'd been killed prior to December 21st. Little tried to claim he was in Florida for the holidays, as he'd always done for the last 15 years, a convenient time to bring that up. It was his time to visit his mother for Christmas. This was disproven, however, when it was found that Little's car was in a body shop in Terre Haute for a minor repair on the 21st. What happened to your car, sir? Now, at this point in Little's trial, there's been a lot of discrepancies, and the defense attorneys drive it home with this, Jim. Quote, Would you convict an honorable man on the words of Larry Eiler? After seven more hours of deliberation, the jury comes back with a verdict. Acquitted of all charges, Robert David Little walks out of the courtroom a free man. What the shit? How? Just... Just how, man? Juries are just people, and that was a solid line, honestly. <laughs> Robert went right back to his library position at the college, and as far as I can tell, he's still there to this day. I tried to look him up, but all I could find was his connection to Larry. Who, by the way, never made it to his execution date. He died in the Pontiac Correctional Center Infirmary of an AIDS-related health complication. After his death, his attorney revealed the confessions of all the names of the men he had killed. A few of the names I missed earlier, my bad, John Bartlett, Michael Bauer, and John Brandenburg Jr. The highway killer ended up with a total of 21 confirmed victims and possibly up to 24. That has to be the wildest roller coaster of a story I've read through in a long time, and that's finally all I have to tell you about Larry Goddamn Eiler. Holy shit, I am worn out after that. It's been a while since I did a deep dive on a serial killer. Oh yeah, there was actually a fourth Larry somewhere else in the story, but I opted to leave it out, because that's just too many Larrys. No more Larrys for a while. Thank you to everyone who stuck around with me until the end. I know this one was a lot longer than the ones I usually put out, but hey, I like to switch things up every now and then. I keep things interesting. I don't want to pigeonhole myself into one format. I like keeping things exciting, so I like doing different stuff. That being said, if you feel up to it, go do some of the free stuff that takes like five seconds and bump my ratings up. Come on, get me up there. If you decide you want to leave a review, um, tell me about the goofy shit your pet is doing lately. That's always fun. Let me know. That's all I have for you today, though. I should have a new episode out for you all next Sunday as well. I'm not certain of the subject yet, but I kind of have an idea for something, so I will see you all next Sunday. Bye, everybody. Stay, Stay kind. kind.